Good evening. My name is Yolanda Johnson. I am a librarian here at Pratt Central. And I'm here to introduce tonight's Writers Live speaker, Dr. Francis Beckles. But first, I'd like to welcome you to our library and also thank you um, for your continued patronage and support of the library and our programs. Now, for this evening's speaker, Dr. Francis N. Beckles. Dr. Beckles' book, Hop the A-Train, is an historical novel based on her family's vivid accounts of how their lives were changed by the events of World War II. She was born and raised in Harlem, but has been a Maryland resident for a number of years. Dr. Beckles is a graduate from Morgan State University, Howard University, American University, and the University of Pennsylvania. She is also a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. She's an editor, journalist, retired college professor, and has written several books. Her book, Hop the A-Train, will be available for sale tonight, and I'm sure everyone will want to purchase it after they hear her speak. So without further ado, Dr. Frances Beckles. Thank you so much for coming out um, this evening. Uh, this library holds some very fond memories for me because as a student at Morgan, I spent a lot of time in the Maryland room. In fact, one of my book, 20 Black Women, just, I just almost had a bed there and slept there in doing that book. Thank you for coming out because the traffic was really, really, um, you know, kind of messy and everything. And I learned from Ms. Edmonds that the city has had a number of fires which made it kind of uncomfortable to get here. Okay, what I want to do is to uh, share with you this wonderful journey that um, was taken by three African-American uh, young women uh, at the dawn of World War II as they left a rather uh, oppressive racist environment in the South to go and work into war plants in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, it was a difficult time, but it also was a fun and vibrant time. They settled in Harlem, New York. Now, how many people know about Harlem or have been to Harlem? What do you know about Harlem? <laughs> okay, well, well, James is a he was a celebrity. In fact, he's still a celebrity now because the Schromberg Collection for African American History just, you know, is just booming with information about him. And uh, it's still a very vibrant place. It's changed a lot, though. Uh, it's, some, it's changed for the better. Harlem is a place not only great for good food because you what you have a multicultural people there. Uh, then when I was growing up as a kid and even so much more now, and it's a great place to eat good food and it's also a great place to party. But Harlem also is a place of great political fervor. Uh, so much happened in Harlem in terms that was really a foundation of the political base upon which uh, black communities sprung into being. And what I'd like to do is share with you the journey that these three young women took from Texas uh, to New York. And I want to give, first of all, thanks to Ms. Edmonds 
and the library staff for being so very generous in giving this platform. And to my son, because my son, Melvin, in the back, he's, he, when, you're, when you're ready to buy the books, he's the man who's going to get, take your money. He was the one saying, Ma, we should go on to, to, and deal with um, the library, the main library first, because I'm on Amazon.com too. So he did a terrific job, and I want to thank the staff again. Okay, Hop the A-Train is a historical novel. And what I'm going to do, I'm just going to take excerpts from the book and share it with you, and we'll just have dialogue as we go along, okay? It's a historical novel. That means that the characters in the novel are uh, fictitious to some degree, but they do represent people who did live. The events are absolutely authentic, Characters in this novel had contact with key historical uh, figures. For example, my uncle who turns 80 the day after Christmas, his character is woven into this story. He had contact with many, many people who made history within this particular time. He visited Castro when Castro came to the Teresa Hotel. Okay? He also had contact with Malcolm, and you know Malcolm was killed in Harlem. So as many events that happened in Harlem at this time that these characters had direct contact with. Now I think it's very important to share the history of not only our people, African American people, but we also a part of the human race. Uh, we want to share the history of what happened and one way of doing it is to make it enjoyable, because many times young people look at it, oh, it's so boring, all, but they need to know that the people who were active during this time were human-breathing people like you and I, okay? They had their ups and downs, you know. So putting it into the framework of a historical novel served those purposes, and I think it's very, very important that we tell our story. Now, um, it was the dawn of World War II when these three young women made their journey from a small Texas town to Harlem, New York. Now, they didn't make it all at once. One, the eldest sister went, and then the others followed, which is very true about how black people did things. One went ahead, and then the other followed. And you might say this was the second migration of African-American people. Now, what was the first migration? Now, put your thinking caps on. <laughs> the first migration was what? After World War I. It's always after the war that our people become, that people in general will become restless and want something better. So these young women did. Now, again... Um, this was a time where they lived in very, very oppressive times. And what spurred them on to make this journey, to make that leap, was their aunt. You know, it's always somebody in the family said, well, you know y'all can do that, okay? And the sisters, Lila, Julia, Cora, are part of, again, as I said, the second migration. And Maddie, their aunt, said to them, Girls, that is when World War II broke out, she said to them, girls, you must remember that this is a time for opportunity. And this war will bring marvelous opportunities for you. And she said this because she had just read in the paper earlier that day, the local paper, 
this following advertisement. Wanted civilian personnel. Look, Joe, she said to her husband, who was a doubting Thomas. It says right here, as she pointed to the paper, non-military persons interested in work and the war effort report to courthouse room 26. Application for government employment will be issued. High school graduates preferred. Now, she was lucky because that meant all her, her nieces. That is, except the last one, the youngest one. And she had a situation which I will share with you. But the other two, indeed, were high school graduates. So they were going to be given preferential treatment. And um, so they applied. And of course, things didn't go easy right away. As you read the novel, you will see the kinds of problems they encounter. Because they weren't going to let these young black women just go in and apply for a job and get it. No, they had some struggles. They had some struggles. And of course, Joe, her husband, who was the one who always say, you can't do that, you can't. He would say, I told you so, that just was for white people. That was not for black people, okay? All right, and um, again, we see that um, this was a time not only for young people who were just starting out, but for those people who worked in um, domestics, who worked on farms, World War II gave them an opportunity to do what better themselves. Now, for those of you who are from the Maryland area, Sparrows Point. Now, what's special about Sparrows Point? Steel. Many black people in this area were able to move up to middle class status after World War II. Because or during World War II, they were able to get jobs in the steel mill and what have you. And many people went to college on the basis of their parents, what? Working in the steel industry, saving money. And for many of them, they were the first generations to go to college. Okay? So it was lots and lots of opportunity. All right. Now, let's look at the plight of domestics. Miss Thelma also a character in the book, she said to the girls when they did finally reach Harlem, and she was a mentor of the girls, uh, who is a domestic, and she confirmed the conditions that it was getting better on the basis of, of what's happening in the war. And she says to them, she says, my madam is a good woman. That's why I stay with her. But don't get me wrong, I don't work for free, she added gingerly as she touched her upsweep hairdo. She pays me good, so that's why I'm, I'm here with her. She knows I can make more by doing what? Working in the war plants in Brooklyn. So at every level, you found black people were able to do what? Indeed, better themselves. Okay. Now, against this background, you found that uh, the struggle, of course, to make their lives better, black people had fun, too. This was the time of rent parties. You know anything about rent parties? Rent parties. Who knows about rent parties? And it wasn't only just people having problems with their rent. This was a social event. 
And they used to print little cards, little tickets. And they have a little saying on the tickets. Uh, the guys are fine, the, the girls the girls are fine as wine. Come on up and cop a grind, mean dance. Okay, dance, okay. So we always put some levity in even a very, very difficult, difficult situation. Now, um, let's see, because I'm, I'm skipping around to different sections. Okay, I think uh, if we're talking again about the military, and I think it's very important to let you understand the impact of the military on the African-American community, particularly in Harlem. You must remember our fighting men were fighting two wars. They were fighting what? They were fighting oppression at home, and then they were fighting the Germans in terms of the Nazis, um, you know, in the course of the war. And uh, the People in Harlem were very, very much aware of that. So anytime they would have these rent parties, they were always very, very accommodating to the, to the men, uh, the young military men that was there. Now, at one of the rent parties, uh, the Tuskegee Air Corps men were there. Now, does anybody know about the Tuskegee Air Corps men, who they were? Ah, what about the guy in the back? Uh, there were a number of men who joined the uh, Army Air Corps, and it was an all-black, I would suppose, squadron, even though they weren't called a squadron at that time. And uh, they were the first men to, to besides those outside, they were the first men outside of Canada to fly planes for the Army, and they saw action during World War II, first as escorts and then as fighters. Very, very courageous men. Anybody else want to comment on that? I had an uncle who was in Tuskegee Airmen, and he uh, many times showed us his um, uh, photographs and so forth. And my mother used to say his war stories. I really don't believe he was part of that. And we would say, well, mother, why would he be in uniform and have so many pictures if he was not? But he was, and he proudly served in the Tuskegee Airmen. Absolutely, absolutely. And they trained in Harlem. They trained in Harlem at the polo grounds. Now, if you, never, if you know anything about Harlem, because a lot of it has changed, but this is where many of those men did their training. Um, the, and they were the 365, uh, 365th Regiment. And they came in uh, at this party, and Sidney, who's one of the characters, certainly wanted to welcome them. And Sidney says, and Sidney lived on Sugar Hill. Now, know where Sugar Hill was? This is where all the swanky people, all the people who were flying into a lot, this is where, you know, the number backers and all that group, and people in show business, they lived on Sugar Hill. And at these rent parties, you'd have people coming together of different ethnic groups, different races, religion. Um, you had people in show business, even people, you know, and, and the clergy. The minister was there sometime, you know, he was passing the word on to people. And it was a good mix of people being human and, and enjoying themselves. The food was always great, too, again. So Cal was one of the, another character in the group. But Sidney was a, a bon vivant guy. Everybody knows somebody who's a Sidney. If you know anything about the Greeks on, on college campuses, Sidney would be a kappa. He would be a kappa man, you know, very, very into everything. And Sidney, um, in Chapter 7, he says, and this 
this chapter is called The Joint is Jumping. And it said, Sydney, the host, says, looking past Cal, another character, oh, some of our boys from the, six, from the 365 uh, Regiment have just come in, and I want to welcome them. And he moves past the girls, the sisters, and he says, ladies, I'm going to put you back in the hands of this guy, meaning Cal, because he was very, very gratiating and charming, Sidney was. You tell me if he fails to make you happy, because this was a brother who always had, what, a silver tongue with the ladies, always. Uh, the big man teased as he headed back towards the front of the apartment. Yeah, they're training less than 10 blacks down, in, down the street at the, at the Army, 10,000 blacks, he meant to say. Cal relates, those guys over there are fighting pilots. Very, very few black fighting pilots, but they were, and it was documented. Okay, they come in from Tuskegee, Alabama, and the Amsterdam News, which is the local paper for Harlem, carried a big story on the front page, and they reported that they were coming to town, these men, and, and probably somewhere on Long Island was where they were being trained. Now, remember, in World War II, off the coast of Long Island, they had discovered what? Nazi submarines. Nazi submarines that we really didn't know that the enemy had penetrated so close to our borders, but they had. But they had. And um, probably somewhere on Long Island, well, they await to join the unit in North Africa. And these men had some encounter with the group. And the young men began to sing out of just so much feelings of warmth, of being in a very warm environment with people who cared about them. And they began to sing what? It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do up, do up, do up, do up, do up. Okay, okay. And uh, when the song ended, there is enthusiastic applause from, for the young uh, men. The cheers are not just for their singing, but everybody in the party knew that these young men were fighting two battles, as we said before, racism at home and fascism aboard. That morning, the Amsterdam News, again, the local paper, had a front-page story that talked about the abuse and humiliation Negro soldiers had encountered in the country's segregated military, while on the, same, on the same front page, adjacent to it, they reported that who? Joe Lewis sold over $1 million in war bonds. So you see, this is the kind of conflict that, were, that, that was encountered by African-American people during this time. Now, the numbers game was big, big, big in Harlem. Big, big, big. Now, do you know where the numbers game came from? And we, have, we legitimized it now to call it the lottery. Okay? But it really started with the penny game. And who bought the penny game to New York, and particularly to Harlem? Does anybody know? Is anybody in the group here is of a Latino or Caribbean background? 
Alicia, you are. Yeah. Well, that penny game came from the Caribbean. The Caribbean people, they bought the penny game that evolved into the, evolved into the numbers. You said y'all had a numbers man? Yes, there was a numbers man in oh, yeah. Edgewood, Maryland, the town where I grew up. Everybody knew him, and everybody had their five or ten cents that they put on their numbers. <laughs> Absolutely. My, my uncle was the numbers man in Baltimore City. Oh, okay. And I remember him coming, and my grandmother would have three cents. She'd put a penny on this number <laughs> and a penny on that number, and she'd play maybe five cents that would be it for the day for her. And so... He, I'm quite familiar with that. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? I am also. My mother-in-law won a few thousand, uh-huh. and the family had a dispute over ownership of the money because one person purchased the ticket or whatever uh-huh. and went, wouldn't share it. Okay. All right. We got a comment there in the back about the numbers game. My family was also close to the numbers, and I am very proud of it uh, because although it was something illegal, it, it was a highly structured organization, oh, yeah. and the number of men who ran the numbers on the street reported to higher-ups, and it was almost like a corporation. And one of the things that these numbers men did was really support the black community. You couldn't get loans back then, so when people wanted to uh, purchase things, cars, houses, or whatever, they went to the numbers backers to get loans. And when people died, they... Uh, supported the families. So it's a lot of vital supports that they gave to people that people don't really look at. A lot of people just deem it as something illegal, but it was a very important support system for black people back in the day. That's very important because it was the quote-unquote quasi or informal banking system within the black community, you know. And for many, many people, they would not, because you couldn't get loans, couldn't get a car, couldn't get a house, unless you had that financial backing of what? The numbers, the number backers. Okay. Now, in one, in one of the chapters, the number backer, oh, and in and, and, and many instances, not all, see, because Baltimore was a, a little different. Baltimore had... Uh, organization where one of the kingpin of the numbers was married to an educated woman, and I'm not going to add who that is because any Baltimoreans know that, okay? But you see, the Italian community and the African-American community were very, very, very close. But for the most part, the higher echelon of the numbers business in the African-American community tend to be the Italians. They were the, on the higher. And then under that you had blacks and what have you. But they were at the higher echelon. And that eventually evolved into the drugs. And we'll talk about because they, they, they touch on this too. Okay? So now in one of the chapters we're talking about the numbers game. And this is a story of love and passion too. You know, And in this section here we say... Um, uh, one of the head number backers for this section of Harlem is uh, in a little eatery in Harlem. And he talks to uh, the cook because this beautiful black girl comes down the steps and he sees her great legs, so he wanted to know who she was, okay? So he says, 
I've never seen her before, half, he said, leaning over the counter. Who is she? He says in a casual way, not wanting to seem too anxious, remembering his father said, uh, advised him never to show outward fear or desire. Who you mean, boss? Half says playfully. That girl who just left? Oh, boss, you know, I can't keep up with all the pretty young women come down to this place, the fat cook says, reluctant to give out any information on the girls. Now, another thing about Harlem, Baltimore is unique. Anybody come into Baltimore can get information about everybody. In Harlem, that never happens. You could see the person pass and say, what's her name? Who? Who what? You know, it's just a rule of thumb. You don't give anybody information. Okay. Really enjoying the food half, this uh, number backer says, it's great. I'm here to please, boss, the cook replies. Mario, who is the head number man, knows he has to be patient with the cook. But he also knows that a few dollars placed in a certain way could produce instant recall. He reaches into his pocket and takes out a crisp $10 bill and places it on the counter before the cook. He asks again, what did you say her name was? The cook looks at the $10 bill on the counter and then glances up at Mario. He smiles again. You mean that girl who just left? Yeah, Mario says, responding in a casual way. Oh, you mean Sugar? That's Sugar Duquesne. Sugar Duquesne, boys, don't you know her? She dances and sings over at the Harlem Garden sometime. Mario makes a mental note to get over to the Harlem Garden when he's back into the neighborhood. And a relationship it happens with those two characters, and a lot of other stuff happens with them also. Okay, the numbers game. You see, when people, and another influence in the African community, African-American community in Harlem was not only the mix of African-American and Italian, but also Orientals were part of that mix, too. So when people come together under particular circumstances, they come together. You don't separate them because need, need comes about. And you see that in here. And, um, okay, let's see what else here. Uh, let's go through some other. Okay, another historical, very, very historical event that happened in Harlem, and it spread not only within the in the state of New York throughout the country but throughout the world because, you see, it was very hard for us to say we were going to fight oppression, you know, abroad and then have this scandal in our country. And what was that scandal? That was the Harlem riots. And that was a big, big event. Anybody remember, know anything, anything that parents told them about the Harlem riots? But the Harlem riots were very, very important in that you have to remember in Harlem at the time, although you had these, the Renaissance, the um, or, uh, uh, Cotton Club and all that, what happened, you know, you had these beautiful showgirls and all who could dance there, but they could not sit down and have a drink or eat a meal there. So you had the powers to be used it as a playground, but those people who lived there 
were unable to reap the benefits of the money that was coming into Harlem and all. So there was deep-seated unrest, unrest. Constantly, this rebellion was there, and it erupted, and it erupted because of what? An incident where a young black uh, soldier was home from World War II on leave, and he was shot by a policeman in Harlem. And that ignited the whole Harlem riot, and it gave rise to many revolutionaries. A lot of the um, Italian gangsters and all during the 40s. Oh, yeah. The 50s, oh, yeah. Did, they, did that tie? Yes, that very much tied in because after the Caribbeans and Latino people bought the penny game in, they really stole the penny game from them, and they they uh, converted it into the numbers, as we would know. They refined that. They refined that. And what was quite detrimental, not only did they refine the numbers, they moved it up another niche. Now, some within the Italian community did not want that to happen. And what did they move in? They moved in drugs. And some in the Italian community warned, say, this is going to spill out on everybody, the drug war. Okay. And it did. And it did. Yes. Okay. Um, so the Harlem riots, uh, of course, was a black soldier that was uh, shot by a white cop, and the neighborhood exploded. Six deaths, nearly 700 injuries, and property damage of $5 million. And that you'll find unfolds in Chapter 10, and that's the chapter Unrest in Harlem. One of the most important labor leaders in the country and particularly had an impact on the economic situation of black families. And many of you sitting right here, your family benefited from what he did, and that was A. Philip Randolph. Does anybody remember or know anything about A. Philip Randolph? Yeah, A. Philip Randolph. He was very, very, very important because he had the energy and the confidence to approach President Roosevelt, and this, remember this was during times of war, and said he was going to call a strike of black people if black people were not given what? Equal opportunity to work in places of military and governmental support. In other words, if, a, if the government was putting money into a particular a business, they ha had to hire black people that were qualified. In other words, because the tax dollar were going into that. So A. Philip Randolph was extremely important. And again, who was it was saying? Yeah, well, uh, A. Philip Randolph, he was also responsible responsible for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Excellent. Yes, he, he brought all those porters together as a, as a, as a union and uh, changed uh, uh, greatly the way the railroads were doing business with the, uh, with the black porters. Eventually, white uh, people saw the advantage of being a porters on the train, and in a lot of cases, they moved a lot of the black people out, but some of them still remain. My uncle was one of those who remained a sleeping car porter, my great uncle. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, and that was an honored position. Those men had a lot of money, and a lot of women used to run behind them. So when they came to the rent parties, only thing they had to say that they were with the railroad, because mothers used to tell their children what? Their, their young girls get what? A good a railroad man. 
a railroad man or a good man that works for what? The post office. <laughs> post Anybody else remember? Okay, all right. Yeah, so A. Philip Randolph, he mobilized uh, blacks uh, to protest during uh, uh, World War II, uh, to protest against underrepresentation in the workplace. And Sunday at the famous ballroom is a chapter, chapter nine, that talks about that. And you feel the energy of our people coming together. And the famous ballroom is also the spot of what? Who was killed at the famous Malcolm? Okay, all of these places were in Harlem. All of that. Malcolm was was shot and killed in the famous. So a lot of things happened in the famous. You had fun at the famous too, because you had all the Latin Latino people coming, you know, on Saturday night, and they would do their Latin dances, and you come in. But it was also a place you had a lot of political activity going on there. A. Philip Randolph. And again, in chapter, uh, chapter 9, we, we see that. In the next chapter, you see loose lips sink ships. Now, what was that about? Talk too much. Now, this is also a story about intrigue and spying. Okay? Intrigue and spying. So you did have spies, you know, and that kind of atmosphere, you had all kinds of people, and you had spies and intrigue. Now, Loose Lips um, sink ship. Cora, who is the youngest of the sisters, get a job in one of the, the munition plants. Now, she gets a job because of what A. Philip Randolph was able to open that up. Okay, So they had to make room, and she was one of the beneficiaries up there. And they told him right away. And then you read about the precautions that were taken uh, to keep people from sharing information, even as they uh, were transported from the subways onto buses to bring them to uh, the shipyards. A lot of precautions were taken. And you, you find that. Now, Cora's best friend was named Yummy. And Yummy enjoyed going where? To the Harlem Gardens, partying all night long, and then falling asleep on the bus when it's time to go to work. She was a typical friend who really only lived to have fun. Only lived to have fun. But she was needed because she kind of kept Cora, Cora going. Okay. Now, um, essentially, we know that unless we tell our own story, nobody will tell our story. So it's essential. With your uncle being a Tuskegee man, with anybody else in the room who have, who have family or friends who witness a part of this era, you need to share it with younger people in the family. It's very, very important, unless it'll be lost, because we put so much into just entertainment. Life lessons tell us what? You must know your past in order to what? You got it. You must know your past. And it's also important to understand that people all came together. There were no real separations. I mean, the separations were artificial things when people suffer 
and they are deprived, at some point they come together. So this is the story not only of the efforts of African Americans, which is the primary one, but they encountered all kinds of people who helped them to reach their goals. And there were many because Julia wanted to be a fashion designer and she was not able to be a fashion designer on her own. She was able to have contact with the Jewish community, okay, who someone was able to help her to move into that direction. So it's very, very important to realize that and to understand that we're all what? Interconnected. We're all interconnected. Now, questions? And of course, um, Melvin Beckles at the back will take your money, hop the A train. They make excellent uh, gifts. If you're considering a gift for the holidays, excellent. And we're trying to reach as many libraries schools, so if you know libraries outside of the area, if you know schools outside of the area, it's very, very important that you share this information and we will see that this information gets out. Okay, questions? Hi, my name is Alicia. Um, what inspired you to, to write um, such a beautiful book? Oh, well that's very interesting. My uncle who turns 80 years old, Uncle Ken, he turns 80, on um, the day after Christmas. Uh, he was um, getting older. And my Aunt Fanny passed away, who was his sister. All this part of the family, she passed away. My mother passed away in June. So I wanted to chronicle their experiences. So I had an opportunity. My brother sent me to Paris on one of my birthdays um, two years ago. And in that time, you know, I, it just came to me that I really wanted to share this kind of story, you know. So that's how it came about. Good question. How long did it take you to write this, this book? Ten years. Because I was doing a lot of other projects. A lot of other projects. A lot of other projects. And then I realized I would stop and then I would start something else and stop and do something else. You talk about it and remember so many beautiful memories so vividly. How much was from your personal experience versus research? Okay, uh, that's a great question. The skeleton was from research. The, actually, because I mean, I didn't know Castro, although, although I understand from Aunt Fanny, he was fine, okay? Um, uh, so the skeleton, the events, I needed to verify the events, and that's why I spent so much time in the Stromberg collection in Harlem, okay? But I remember my mother and my aunts getting dressed up and going out with their Kalinsky furs like that, and I remember my Aunt Fanny was a very glamorous woman who was well-liked by a number of men, and I would sit as a little girl four or five years old, sit and watch her put her makeup on. And she would put nut brown powder on and doing that, croaking all her hair and everything. And I used to think, I don't know why Aunt Fanny putting all that stuff on her face. She's so beautiful anyway. She don't need that. So to answer your question, I remember seeing them. I remember uh, the joy that they had. And then my uncle, who turns 80, he was a seaman. So he bought the whole panorama of people through our doors, all kinds of people, I mean, all ethnicity. I remember he brought a guy from England there 
and the guy um, uh, uh, came in t and to get his hair cut in the black community. And I was just shocked that the, the, the barber knew how to cut his hair, you know, because he didn't want no fro <laughs> or fade. He just, you know, so we met all kinds of people. And my uncle, he was a, just a fabulous man who, you know, just knew everything. He had, just, he had thought of one while living in Barcelona, Spain, because very handsome and knew a lot of women, right? So uh, he just brought the world to our door, and he brought us souvenirs from all over the world and everything. So that, that was the stimulus. I'm just curious, are there other writers in your family, uh, yes. in your immediate family and in your um, extended family, like your mom, your dad, your yeah, grandparents. Yeah, well, actually, other writers in the family, I mean, I have to encourage them to do it. My son is a writer, a director, that he starts and stops, and to get him, I always say to him, have you done any work today? Because it means you're looking for dialogue and images all the time, images. They tell him you need to keep a little notebook around with you. You put all the images that you see in it, okay? My uncle, as he traveled around the world, he always had an, he kept an account of who he saw and what he said. And he's writing his memoirs now, you know. So he's 80 years old and he's writing his memoirs. My daughter is a poet and photographer. Ah. And I have a huge problem. Now she's a makeup stylist, but I want her to stay with. No, no, no. They're all related. And, for, and photography. Uh, but they're all related, you know. Yeah, but she, I know, but she puts it down and then she picks it up. Uh -huh. Then she puts it down and picks it up. And I want her to keep it. Yeah. And I, I, I try all kinds of innovative ways of getting her and reminding her that that's important to keep that and log it somewhere and not lose it. Okay. And she just forgets all about it and doesn't think mm -hmm. it's as important mm -hmm. well, of an uh, idea as I do. Yeah, okay. Mom, we're still in the same kind of situation because I say to my son, because he'll come up with something. I say, oh, Melvin, that is fantastic. Why? He say, oh, Ma, they don't always see it. So, number one, you might want to keep a little chronicle of her things. Number two, the creative process does call for some discipline, but it's not bookkeeping. It really isn't. And if you could put her in the company of other creative people, if she could join a group of writers, young writers or what have you, that would also inspire her for some discipline. You know, yeah, it, it, it's... it's and then she needs to find out when she feels her most energy. Was there ever a point in your life where you said, oh, I don't feel like oh, yeah. finishing oh, yeah. Yeah. my Yeah, my, well, 10 years. Yeah. 10 years is because yeah. it's a lot of other things that were coming in. And remember, for women, we have to cook, clean, and do all other things. It's not like with men. It's not like, you know, they have that kind of ongoing support. We still got to raise kids. We got to cook. We, although my family members here, they know I'm not too cool at the cooking piece. But, you know, you have to do those kind of things to keep your life going. But you see, a part of being a part of that creative force for your daughter is important because it's a part of the soul. 
if it's not expressed in some way, a part of her is not alive. It's a, it's a, it's a way of you. Was there ever a point in, in your life, I know you said your book was in the making 10 years, mm-hmm. but was there ever a point where you put it aside, put your writing aside for maybe longer than 10 years and said, well, I'm going on another no, voyage no, no. and no. I don't know. Because I bring, you know, you go to the dollar store and get yourself one of the little pads. I bring that with me all the time because I, it's always some vision. Every time I see something, I write down, okay? Because now I've gotten older, I understand it's a part of my expression of my soul. I didn't understand that before. Um, I'm getting ready to go on to another journey in a way, in a sense, and what I want to do is teach yoga to young children, particularly children in the inner city, because once you learn about your body, you will always be able to stay connected with yourself throughout your life. Okay, but it's a sequel coming to this book. Okay, my niece and my son are my agents, and since and my niece, she um she calls me all the time, Linda. She said, now you know the first of the year we're gonna do 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 do, and she's a typical salesperson. So I know I got to be ready for her. My son is a little more gentle. He, you know, he said, well, ma, you know, but she, a taskmaster. So. Have her to join a group of other writers, and always write. If 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 it's if it's if she wants to write, always write something. Always write something. See, because your vision of the world is very very important. See, your vision of the world has merit. You know, it disturbs me sometimes to look at television. What I see on television, because. What you see on television for some people will color their life. You know what, what's in here? You assume this is all there is. No, this is not all there is. You know, you create it. You create it. You know, you do. That's why I direct I tell my son all the time, it's so important. I said, you tell people what they're supposed to be feeling and doing. So you better get on a good foot, boy. Yes. Yes, but see, all of this take work, all of it, all of it. From the time you get up in the morning, you know, if you're a morning person with that energy, I have a pad and pencil on my bed, you know, that I, you know, visions and stuff. I had an occasion to spend a time with my, one of my dearest girlfriends, a play date with her um, grandchildren. And the energy that I got from being with them that, that, that time um, and what they talked about gave me some ideas in terms of some other kind of creative things. So you need to be also with people of different age groups, different ethnicity, different backgrounds. You can't just be with one, you know, to really be. Because what you're really talking about is the world as you see it. And the more you with different people with different visions. It's like touching the elephant, the blind man touching the elephant, and touched his tail and said, oh, this is a snake, <laughs> you know, or his ear, you know. So everybody you encounter have merit. And then you embrace what is comfortable for you, you know, 
and the other you let go. You, you, you have to honor yourself, and you have to have confidence in yourself. And it's a struggle. It, it, it really is a struggle because you, you, you have sometimes people saying they don't see the merit of it. And particularly, and I don't want to poo-poo on the men, but particularly for women, it's very, very important that you hold to who you are because you give so much. You're constantly giving, you know, to the people in your life, the man, the children, the job. It's easy to forget who you are. Easy to do that. Mm -hmm. My name is Margaret Pagan. I'm president Mm -hmm. of the Black Writers Guild of Maryland. I'm so happy to hear you say to her to have her daughter join a group of writers. We'd love to have your daughter join us. We, some of us have written and published our books. Others haven't published anything, but they have a drawer full of writing, you know, that they're waiting to pull together. So we'd love to have her, so please let's talk so mm-hmm. I can tell you how to get in touch with us. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. We all have stories, and you, you decide how you want to frame those stories, how you want to share the story, the stories with the outer world. Dr. Belkus, thank you so much for coming.